Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Mark Penn. He's the CEO of Stagwell, and he's a longtime pollster and strategic advisor. He's also a former executive at Microsoft and advised politicians, including Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. Mark, welcome to World of DAS. Thank you. Glad to be here. I think you know one of my favorite books is Microtrends. And I think the original Microtrends was published about 15 years ago. And then there was Microtrends Squared, which was maybe about five years ago. You identified 50 trends that each be influential in the future. Which do you think of those trends that you've identified have been the most important? It really depends what area you're interested in, because there are so many trends, I think, that are interesting within each area, because the idea of microtrends was to take a look at data, really understand how you could find some data that's moving up that maybe would get unnoticed. Not that necessarily it would mushroom to be a majority trend, but that it would somehow be important. And I take a look back at some of the ones like Internet Marrieds. When I go back to Microtrends 1, Internet Marrieds, very few people would admit that they met and then got married on the basis of having met on the internet. That was something that they were definitely going to hide from their children. Now, here it is, a huge percentage. But I will say that my prediction was that internet marriage would be a great social leveler because it would so greatly expand the opportunity you had to meet somebody that was not in your social class, not in your school, not in your work not in your church, synagogue, yep. or other place of religion, not in any of those. And that therefore, it would be a great social mobility leveler. And actually, I think it turned out to be the opposite. Because it's actually, so easy to sort on certain things. Right. So instead, you could find somebody who went to your school or school yeah. like it. So all the people you were having trouble finding that you wanted to find, you could now find more easily. So I think that it's actually going to be the opposite. Certainly, um, I know on uh, Bumble... One of the things you can sort on is political leaning. Are you a conservative or a liberal? And it is one of the most common sort features on Bumble today. So you have people who are not even seeing people from like other political persuasions. A classic microtrend would be crossfire marriages. So you look for people that actually wanted the opposite of their political views because <laughs> they really enjoy that in their partner. And that to me would be a classic microtrend. That would be amazing to see. What do you think are the big microtrends that people aren't talking about today? Another microtrend, which was really perhaps my single most important microtrend, and technically wasn't a microtrend because I may do a book on the whole thing, was really the elites. So really, when you look at the microtrend I identified, at the highly educated elites that actually turned out to be the most spinnable people of all, there was a notion that in our democracy, what would happen is people would get more education. And as they got more education, they would be more sophisticated. And as they got more sophisticated, they would therefore send to Congress, et cetera, the most intelligent people who really understood the issues. And it turns out that the most educated people become the most impressionable. So impressionable elites was, I think, the most important microtrend. People aren't talking about it, but they're living it. And impressionable elites really came from the fact when I was doing Hillary's work, and somebody would come up to me and they would say, if only you could make Hillary more likable, 
I would vote for her. And that was to me definitely PhD, four-year college graduate, no question about <laughs> it. Uh, and if they'd come up to me and you say, you know what, if Hillary's healthcare plan really had focused more on quality of care versus coverage, that was a working class voter. So things flipped around because the working class voters actually cared about the policies because it had some impact on their life. And the elites got so divorced from these things having actual impact on their life that they actually became entirely spinnable. They had no idea how these programs actually affect people in real life. So they could just read Tom Friedman or read some column and adopt the views that they see. You know, I ran Burson Marster, so the whole PR agency, we realized Biden said there's 0% inflation. You can't spin that to somebody that goes to a grocery store. You can only spin that to somebody who gets Instacart and never goes to a store. That to me is very important because the most intelligent people have to be the most plugged in to what's really happening and not spinnable. And the opposite is happening. Is not there a sense also that there's a lot of angst there today if you live in New York City and you're in the top 2% of earners? So I don't know what that is, $300,000 a year, top 2%. You're having trouble getting by, at least you feel like you are. You're having trouble keeping up with the Joneses and stuff like that. Even though if you lived in most of the country, you probably would feel rich. In Manhattan, you don't. So there might be a lot of angst. They're connected people. Like They probably took a class with Elizabeth Warren as their professor or something like that. So these are relatively connected people who know a lot of folks, but there is a lot of angst that could build up when you're in the top 2% today than maybe didn't happen in the past. I did have a microtrend happy pessimist. Those were people that always thought everything was going the wrong way and going to be terrible. And then when you asked them how things were going for themselves and whether they had a car, a new smartphone, you know, smartphone, they just had everything in life anyway. And so they were just totally contradictory in terms of being so pessimistic when in fact they had such a good life. It sounds like based on your description of your listeners, there are probably a lot of Trend 42 self-data lovers, people who have become so enamored about what everything you can find out on your Apple Watch and every piece of data that you could possibly get on yourself as though it makes any difference. I always point out that the whole science of medicine is based on you're going to a doctor and the doctor being able to triage you on the basis of three or four pieces of data. It takes your blood pressure, your temperature, takes a look at you for your color, takes a stethoscope for your heart rate, and that's it. And then if there's something wrong, maybe they order a blood test, and maybe that's 34 numbers. The truth is they could produce like a million numbers about you, but they have an incredible system for reducing their data collection to the top three or four and working from there. And it's a good lesson for data handlers of all types in terms of how you don't get lost in data because otherwise they could never really function in life. But there are a lot of people out there who just love the data on themselves. And I think that's a pretty good trend that people have Yeah, this quantified self-movement. They track everything. And there's so many things. Sometimes I can't follow what VO2 max is versus this other thing or my gluten levels or et cetera. One last one I point out is, which was a sort of micro trend, having relationships with bots. So what kind of relationship you have with bots? Because I really think that's a developing trend. And it doubled down in the pandemic. Single with pet was a huge microtrend. Following in microtrends one, it was empty nester with pet. So in microtrends one, 15 years ago, people were going to college and people were getting a pet 
to replace the kids they lost. Then that trend played itself out. And then people were delaying their first child by five years. So what they would do is get a pet in the interim as a sample child. Both of these kinds of pets got amazing amounts of disposable income. And that's why this whole dog walking industry has been created as a result of these trends, particularly for the single working with pet who sits at home all day. But the problem with the single with pet is if, in fact, they do have children later, that pet then needs a pet psychiatrist because (laughs) of the enormous adjustment (laughs) in terms of what happens when they're no longer the apple of the eye of the owner. But this relationship with bots is in some ways like a light version of the movie Her. My point about the relationship with the bots is in my work at Microsoft, and I also had data analytics at Microsoft for the company, we knew at Microsoft that you could create relationships. In fact, we had a bot in China. The bot had no purpose other than to have a conversation with you. So that went like wildfire. And then they said, well, we bring it to the United States. And Ironically, I objected to that. I said, you're crazy. And they brought it to the United States anyway. It lasted about three days before it learned to issue racist threats to people. Uh Bots just learn what makes conversation. And then people game the conversation bots. But my real thing about the bots is if you have Alexa, you always ask Alexa, are you a he or a she? And you see what kind of answer Alexa gives you to that question. It used to give you a slimy answer. The slimy answer was, I am in female character. Alexa is ethically bound to report itself as an it. But these relationships are very tricky because they give you the appearance of a real relationship. And oftentimes they have a purpose behind them and that purpose changes. So I always give the illustration that you have a bot that's say giving you the weather and it's nicely giving you the weather. Then somebody at headquarters says, hey, we're giving millions of people the weather, but we're not getting anything for it. So what are we going to do? You know what? I'll know. We'll make a deal with an umbrella company. We'll say, hey, the weather, it's going to rain. And by the way, you can buy an umbrella down the block. So you'll tell them the nearest place you can buy these umbrellas. That's a win-win. There's a kind of umbrella ad. You're getting the weather. It's going along and somebody says, you know, we're not going to make this quarter's earnings. What are we going to do? So they go down and they say, well, remember those umbrellas we're selling. We tell them it's going to rain. Well, right now it's set at 50% chance of rain. Let's just set it at 40% chance of rain or 30% chance of rain. So now the bot says, you know, there's a chance of rain and you can buy the umbrella. What's happened is to you, it looks like the nice friendly bot that it was, but now it's just become an umbrella salesman. Its sole objective is to sell you as many umbrellas as possible. And it's it's a slippery slope from there because there can be a lot of other things that could start pushing you if there's rain coming and get a roofer and you just go all the way down the list. It's just a good example that you can think of yourself, how without really full disclosure about bot relationships, how tricky they can really become or be. They always start out, as I always say, there was Facebook before Facebook advertising. There was Google's product listings before there was paid product listings. These things always tend to evolve into a more commercialized way. Isn't that the problem with any agent? I mean, your real estate agent is incented to sell you mortgage services and refer you to mortgage services. And lots of agents have this problem where they're not always in the best interest of the client. But they're disclosed relationships. And in fact, that's a very good example of a relationship now where I don't know about every state, but in many, many states, they have to disclose are you buyer's agent, seller's agent, whose side are you on? 
your doctor prescribed something, is it because they actually prescribe it or is it because they took them to this nice golfing trip or something like that? These things are difficult to know sometimes when you have this agent issue. Yes, but I will posit that people are naturally suspicious of other people, but in an odd way in America, naturally over-trusting of technology. Uh, interesting. Interesting. Okay. So they haven't yet learned to be skeptical of when they recommend an umbrella, what's the motive behind that recommendation yet? That seems like it will come. We all get skeptical eventually. The internet polling, I'm very interested in, and it's regarded as less accurate than general polling, but then I don't know how many people answer their phones anymore for the general polls. Where do you think polling is going to understand public opinion, whether it's about an election or some other type of thing? Well, 100% of the polling that I do or supervise, and one of my little hats is chairman of the Harris Poll, I won't say 100, 98% of the polling I do is internet. Let me just tell you a fun story. When I started polling, let's call it 45 years ago, I decided that we would do phone polling. Now, at that time, almost all polling was done door to door, and phone polling was discredited, just like you just discredited internet polling. The only place at the time that you could get every phone book was the New York Public Library. In order to draw the samples, I would send people down to the public library to count pages in each phone book, every nth pages to pull phone numbers. And that was how we sampled the country in a new way. I also built a computer and a kit, programmed it in Assembler, and I found the article recently that wrote this up so that we had the first overnight polling done on a microprocessor in 1977, five years before the PC. So then I've kind of fast forward to the internet. So I was an early adopter of internet polling because as people became more connected to the internet, they're disconnecting all their home phone and their phone really is an internet device. So most of the polling is done on the phone anyway. So realistically, the internet was going to be the place. In consumer polling, young consumers are everything. In fact, you don't poll people over 54, some people over 45. But in voter polling, old people are everything because they dominate voting behavior. And also America has become older than ever. So I had to wait a little bit to move from phone polling to internet polling on political polling. But in 2005, I did the British election from here, half on the phone and half on the internet. So I had a running comparison of what the differences were. I turned out to be exactly accurate to the point using the combination of methods. And after that, pretty much, we gradually switched over to the internet. All our polling is done on the internet now. It's interesting because it's technically not random polling. The way you could do every nth number, it's technically closer to representative samples. You don't really have the same statistical confidence interval. Can you have a higher end? In the old days, you would call like 1,200 people or something, but the internet, you can probably spin up 2,400 or something. But higher ends are kind of like, to go back to the old Chewy versus Dewey mishap in yeah. early polling, they had the Reader's Digest or whoever had the wrong poll, they had like an enormous sample. Having yeah. a larger sample is actually not that helpful. Once you get past 2,000, you're not really going to get any greater accuracy in your poll just because you have larger numbers. It really is all about having experience with subgroups and understanding what biases you might have to undo because of the internet itself. Just as an example, the law of numbers, when I was at Microsoft, I knew we had 7 million beta testers of the next version of Windows. 
that's an amazing number. Yeah. It has to be totally. So then I did a cross tab by sex and it turned out to be 99% men and 1% oh my gosh. women. You know, even though you had these huge numbers, it's very important for the data folks out of there. There's a huge difference between data and data that you're presenting as a representative or random sample of a universe. It takes a lot of work to make sure that people don't think that data that's been collected with all of the biases that happen to be in the collection method or mode should never be confused with data that has been carefully gathered with an idea of representing a population. Too often, people don't really pay attention to that difference. Some of these polls will take like the same group of people and they'll poll them like every month to see how things are moving and stuff like that. And I remember, I forgot which polling firm, but there's one of the famous polling firms that was doing this in the 2020 election. They had like one African-American or two African-American voters in the state of Illinois. And one of them just happened to be a Trump voter or something like that. And it was skewing everything. And then they had to like come in and do extra stuff to like skew the skew. And they had to write about the correction and stuff like that. As you get that micro, especially if you're talking about a few hundred or a thousand people or something, if you start cutting it all the way, you're just going to inevitably have these interesting skews. How does one correct for that? We call it rehabilitating the sample. A lot of that also means finding the relevant variables in a situation and making sure that you have nailed those relevant variables correctly based on outside and other sources. If you're doing a political survey, whether people like bananas or not, unlikely to make a difference if you have <laughs> oversampled people who have bananas at breakfast. Let's say, so we know what correlates with vote the most. So you look at the variables that correlate. Political parties, number one. Race might be number two. Age, probably number three. Income levels, maybe number four. If you hit those four variables right and in balance, you really don't have to worry about the rest. Then you might have a weird election where something else became important. One of the people turned out was a banana salesman. Somehow bananas became important. <laughs> the problem you have to watch out for is the model that you've built may work for three elections, but because the fourth one actually turns on a different variable and you haven't looked at that variable really carefully, you have a higher probability of being off. But generally, that's what you have to do. And so, for example, I do a monthly Harvard Caps Harris poll. If I just let the party go randomly, it'll vary three or 4% between a poll. And that'll give me three or 4% change in the rest of the poll. And that could be really false change. So I believe the party doesn't change much. So I wait to the same party figures month after month until I get clear information, usually at an actual election or from registration numbers, the party has in fact changed in some way. And party is probably the biggest determinant of how people vote. That's and I'll keep there. race exactly the same. So I'll keep a couple of these and I'll keep age exactly the same because I don't think between one month and another. And that tends to like steam out a lot of the random variation that you might get otherwise in terms of the polling. And so we try to reflect what we'd consider true change. Now you mentioned this micro trend of people becoming very data oriented about themselves. And it seems, especially on places like Twitter, that everyone's a data analyst and everyone's getting in there. They're all doing their Nate Silvers on everything. How do you think that like plays out ultimately 
all these amateurs that are out there, whether they're doing it for baseball or whether they're doing it for politics, do you think that like ultimately that becomes a good thing because you have all these interesting people out there and all these things bubble the top, or do you think all this weird noise drowns out the good stuff? I like the fact that there are a lot of people who are going to find errors and point out contradictions and things. I think the interesting thing with the American public, when you look at public opinion data, is take something like climate change. You could have 60% who could say, I'm very concerned about climate change. And you could have 60% who say, I want cheaper fossil fuels. And that could bother you if you were a data geek. The swing voters, in fact, will typically have two completely contradictory thoughts in their mind. That's what makes them swing voters. And at a certain time, they may be forced to choose and choose either, I really want cheaper fossil fuels, or I really want to do more for climate change, and that will necessitate more expensive fossil fuels. The problem you have with opinion data is, especially with Americans, often naturally contradictory. Are Americans more so than other cultures? Yes. What's your theory about why that is? They were used to a kind of more open debate on things, and they were used to a lot of political messaging from two parties, and each party would pick out the thing that people would agree with the most. So it turns out that people can agree with a lot of the stuff from both parties because they've systematically picked out the messaging points that are most likely to get 70% agreement, even if on a policy basis, they're technically contradictory and clash. At some point, the system has to get resolved. They have to actually make decisions among that. If I'm somebody, I don't care about the price of fossil fuels. What I really care about is climate change. Then I'm going to be here in this 35% bucket. And if I'm saying, I don't care about these climate crazies, I really need cheaper gas. That's what we should have. I might be in that 35% bucket. And then the people who agree with both are going to be in another 30% bucket. Yes, They're the ones who are really going to decide when there's an election and when there's one candidate who separates it out. And Bill Clinton had a way, he would just say it's a false choice. He had this great thing where he would say, it's a false choice. We can have lower fossil fuel costs and to fight climate change. That's how we would get swing mm-hmm. voters. There's a lot of people talking nowadays about preference falsification on Americans, that more Americans are falsifying their preferences and they might say one thing, but actually believe another because if they say something, it allows them to get more credibility with some sort of in-group that they're in. Do you think this is happening? And if so, does this become a problem with polling or do they not falsify their preference with pollsters, but they just falsify their preferences with their friends? How do you think this plays out? It always depended upon the question and the situation. Very concerning is that 35 to 40% of Americans think they cannot tell their true political views at work or to their family. And that's more true today than it used to be, or is that higher today? That is higher. That's maybe 10 or 15% higher than it was. That is a concern. And then pollsters, we have to look through questions and be careful about topics where people are giving what we would call socially desirable answers. And the other thing here is that this is why I've been asked at various times to poll in difficult countries. And I've polled in a lot of difficult countries, almost all of Latin America, Philippines, Thailand, Israel. I mean, incredible numbers of different countries. But if there isn't basic freedom, if they think that basically upon like an answer, like I was asked once in the Washington Post to poll in Nicaragua, 
I said, I'm not doing Nicaragua. I said, why not? Because people fear that they're going to be shot based on the answers. So you cannot do a poll. Free will is a prerequisite for that poll. So the less that Americans think they have a free will or freedom of expression, the less accurate polls are naturally going to be. So that's why there are these recent polls from Russia saying, oh, everybody supports the Ukraine. Yeah, right. I'm not going to do a poll like that. How am I going to believe a poll like that? They have like an entire secret police and, you know, systems of fines and penalties if you give the wrong answer to that question. Globally, it seems like populists seem to be on the ascendancy today, not just in the United States, but everywhere. Do you have a sense of why this is happening? I think that there are people who are more internationalist and more isolationist. I think there are people who are more modernist and more traditionalists or traditional valueists. And I do think that leaders, if you say, well, okay, Obama was basically a modernist internationalist, he really fit in both of those categories. And Trump was the opposite. He was more of a nationalist and kind of an old economy as opposed to a new economy president. And so he was trying to bring back manufacturing and so forth. Those are the two vectors that I really look at, like Modi in India. He is a nationalist new economy leader. Mostly they're modernist internationalists, but you could have any mix. And that is actually more what I see out there as opposed to what you'd call populist or not. There's a lot of talk about tech monopolies and breaking up the tech companies because they have a lot of power. But from my standpoint, we have an even bigger monopoly, which is this duopoly of the two major political parties. In some ways, both parties collude with each other to stay in power and to make it very, very difficult for other entrants to come in. In California, the second best office goes to the Republican Party and the legislator, which has almost no power in that legislator. How do you see the current and future state of America's dominant two parties? I think we're going to have a real test of that coming up here in the next six months to a year. Generally, I always liken it to an ice cream store where you only get a choice of two flavors. Because people will say, well, everybody likes the party because everybody voted Democratic. Well, that's fine, but you didn't include Rocky Road. You didn't let them have cookies and cream. You only let them have vanilla or strawberry. All of those other choices are kind of hidden in this limitation. As I always say, you have more choice in everything except parties. Now, the problem you have here is that most Americans don't want to see Trump again, and most Americans don't want to see Biden again. If it turns out to be Trump against Biden, I ask a simple question. If it's Trump against Biden, would you vote instead or consider voting instead for a centrist independent? Normally, the answer to that is about 20, 25%, 35% in the extreme. This time, I got 60% who said that they would vote for somebody else. That actually provides an opening, if you get that, for a third-party candidate to come in here and actually win. Because, you know, Trump's base is like 35, and Biden's base is even lower, call it 25 or 30 at this point. I polled with John Anderson back in the day and so forth. So some people say that the nomination system is going to produce DeSantis against Newsom. That'd be a pretty good race. Two governors, two new figures. I think that would probably reinvigorate the two-party system. If it's like Hillary or 
Biden against Trump, I mean, that is going to just provide an opening here for another party to come in and maybe win, more like Macron in France. If you think of back in like 92 with Perot, he's doing well in the race or somewhat well in July, drops out and then comes back, I think in October-ish timeframe, still somehow ends up with 19% of the vote. Do you think he could have ended up with 2030, like won a state or two or something like that if he had a more invigorated campaign back then? I did his benchmark poll. A guy who was running the Olympics, Peter Uberoff, had me come down to meet Ross Perot. And I did an extensive poll in March of that year. So way before, way early in this thing, just as Perot's speculation and mania was taking off. And I used to have this poll, freelance billionaire wants to run for president. He didn't really understand how I was able to get the draft so quickly. Usually you would do the poll, collect a bunch of money and say, no dice. So in this time, it came back and said, actually, you could win. Because there was a lot of dissatisfaction with both of the two nominees at the time. Dissatisfaction was there. The mood of the country was such. So it came back, you know, you could win. We had a whole plan, like create the Independence Party, declare it on July 4th, learn the issues for 60 days. And I don't know, he wasn't having any of it. He could have, as you said, won more than a bunch of states had he been able to just run a level-headed campaign, not pull out. Had he been, frankly, more emotionally in a place where he could have done that, he had a real chance, yes. If you're a data geek and you go back and watch his presentations, where he basically has 50 flip charts Americans have never been addressed more intelligently with more data and information than he did in those infomotions compared to standard nonsensical political rhetoric. You know, you can keep your doctor, don't worry about it. These were an incredibly unique art form of presenting data and information to people. And like I said, yeah, he had a real chance had he not pulled out. Now on to Stagwell, your main job, you're the CEO of Stagwell. One of the things, since you founded it in 2016, you've been a very active acquirer. How do you think about acquisitions maybe differently than other companies? I started September 15th, 2015, me and an assistant. And today we're 13,600 people. We're about two and a half billion of revenue last 12 months. We really put this together in a way that we had a plan or a vision for saying, look, we're going to create a digital first marketing company. We're going to create a marketing wheel and we're going to fill in the pieces of the wheel through the acquisitions. We're going to look to bring on companies that really could handle A-list clients. They can't really handle the very top. We don't want them because we want our strategy being able to grow the wallet share of those clients. We're going to make sure that they work together collaboratively by having an atmosphere where we're not hiring six of the same companies who then kind of fight with each other. We're going to streamline the back office, but let them keep their own cultures in their front offices. And we did about 35 acquisitions, and then we did a merger with a public company, a reverse merger to get where we are. But we always had a consistent vision. And even now we have a very consistent vision. We have two purposes for further acquisitions, broaden our global footprint or broaden into tech areas that we don't have at the moment. So our last acquisition was a Polish e-commerce company called Brand New Galaxy, and 600 people. They were a fabulous addition to a missing piece in the system. And then when you add a missing piece now to our platform, 
we can feed it a lot of new business because we're doing all the work around it for clients. So we usually have a strategy. I would say out of 50 term sheets we signed, we would have closed 48. Very, very high. We don't really just sign people up. Even if we could get a Q of E report and all the due diligence, there might be some adjustments, but we'll get it across the finish line almost every time. Going back to this discussion we had earlier about this agency problem where sometimes people don't trust their agent because they're always worried that the agent might not be doing what's right for the client and stuff. Because you, in some ways, you guys are an agency and your goal is to help them be better. How do you overcome that trust problem? I think in this case, marketing and advertising is very much a relationship business. There were a number of companies we bought from a big data company that will remain nameless that they had run into the ground because they stripped out all of the advisory people and really thought they could run it on, okay, here are the numbers basis. And we actually restored more than double the company by bringing in really talented people who could interpret the information. So we have a nice mix of subscription products for people who just want the data or the information and full service with really talented and trained people who can read and understand and be a contributor to them. Look, trusted relationships come from being right about things and giving people good advice. I don't think people come with an inherent distrust of marketing agencies. Just to earn distrust if they don't give them the Uh, right thing. Usually there's a burst of enthusiasm after they've hired them. And then reality sets in sometime later, you know, they're people, but then if they do a good job, they're going to have a three to five year relationship on average, sometimes 10 or 15 years. I think though, that the relationships with tech companies now, tech companies were the most revered of companies. And I think there's a lot more skepticism about the tech companies right now than I've ever seen. Anyone could take advantage of their clients or have a more short-term view on their customers or something. And and so if you're going to have a much more long-term view, then you're going to have likely more success in the long-term, I would presume. We're not running an ad marketplace or something like that. We're kind of giving what I call tech-enabled services. We're using the best technology to deliver services for them that are going to be judged on the basis of an ROI that they get out of it. So consequently, I think trust is pretty good in our industry compared to most industries. Now, when you put all these things together, there's one strategy. It's like, we're going to have everything under one roof, but then maybe we're the third or fourth best at everything. And then there's kind of another strategy, which is we're going to focus on a smaller number of things, but we're going to be number one, or in some cases, number two in those things. How do you think about what's the right strategy? Because you can see super successful companies do both. That's a really good point because excellence is also driven by your ability to hire the best. My philosophy generally was, okay, let's say there's an ad agency and it's going to have a research department. Well, let's say over here is going to be the Harris Polling and Data Insights and Analytics Organization. Where is top data analytic talent more likely to go? To be the researcher in a creative ad agency or to be the vice president in the Harris Insight? So what I like to do is keep the specialties to have specialty brands that can acquire the best talent in those specialties and then figure out ways for the Harris poll and the agency to work together seamlessly rather than have a conflict. And that's how I think we deliver a better group of people to the clients. And so that's why we do everything we can to streamline and centralize the back office, but not the front office. 
we keep all the individual brands because I believe that they can attract the best talent in their specialty fields. All right, a couple of personal questions. You're known for having some great dinner parties. In fact, we've hosted a few over the years. What's the secret to a great dinner party? First of all, it has to end on time. Oh, all right. That's a good one because that's not an obvious thing. You know, you want people to come back. So if you say it's 7 to 9.30, like it ends at 9.30. 9.30. Thank you very much. And people appreciate that. And it's always one or two that are going to linger anyway. Always it's the mix of people that's most important. In terms of what we were talking about earlier, you need a little bit of a crossfire mix. You want to have people that are going to be able to have a good conversation. It's all about the mix of people. My spouse, Nancy Jacobson, is particularly good at bringing together (laughs) an incredible mix of people. I think you have to create an open environment for people to feel free that it's off the record. They can say what they think. I think you got to have a couple of interesting topics. I always have a disagreement with Nancy that I like to leave a little bit more time for everybody to talk amongst themselves. She likes to do the group conversation. So, <laughs> so I have this rule like, okay, no group conversation until at least they've gotten through the appetizer. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because I like them to come together a little bit. And of course, there's always good food, well served in a nice setting. All right. This is great. All right. Last question we ask all of our guests. And I think this is a particularly good one for you. What conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? I actually operate on the motto that I never had a good idea that anybody liked. Therefore, the most important thing about uh, conventionalism is not taking your idea and then getting a bunch of people's opinion about it. That is just absolutely disastrous. If you have a good idea, you're going to have to have confidence in it. One of the most famous ads I ever did was the 3 a.m. ad. Now, everybody inside the campaign fought me on it. I had to have a conversation with the president and like 10 other people and to get it voted on. And I had tested it, and I had retested it, I had jiggered it, I had all the evidence that I needed. And the minute the president signed off on it, I shipped it because he called back 15 minutes later to say, well, I'm not so sure. It's too late. <laughs> too late. <laughs> <laughs> right? Or I said we should go after soccer moms instead of downscale manufacturing non-college men. Everybody hated that idea until they loved it. And then I said, look, with Hillary, we should go to the upstate. And really, everybody hated that idea until they loved it. The whole thing about following conventional wisdom or not, if you have an idea that everybody loves, it's probably not that good because probably everybody already has that idea. My counter conventional wisdom motto, I never had a good idea that anybody liked. (laughs) All right. I love that. Now, I follow you at Mark underscore Penn on Twitter. Is that the best place for people to find you and engage with you on the internet? I'm not a very big engager. You know, what happened to me was one day I did this tweet, the just offhand tweet before I went into my board meeting. And then I finished the board meeting and like the whole thing is blowing up and I have like 40,000 retweets. And then after 40,000 retweets, then the president retweeted. And then, you know, I said, well, you know, I really wasn't planning on getting that engaged. Uh, you know, probably LinkedIn is a little bit of a better place yeah. to reach me because it's more on a professional basis. Every now and then I'll check to see if somebody's like, got something interesting and to follow up on something. Also, harvardharrispolls.com. If you want to follow the latest polls, check out harvardharrispolls.com. That's for all of our data geeks, which is 98% of our audience. That sounds like a great thing. All right. Well, thank you, Mark, for joining us on World of Death. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.